I'm Sasha Sagan, and this is Strange Customs. So the creatures on that one planet have a funny relationship with their reality. They each perceive parts of it differently. They have different ways of expressing what they experience. Sometimes they purposefully express the opposite of their reality. They do this for many reasons. Sometimes it's in order to deceive, to obscure reality from other members of their species, to gain something, to protect something. Sometimes it is as part of an art form. The other creatures know that untruths are being communicated and they derive some other understanding of reality through this circuitous method. But sometimes the untruths are communicated as part of a game. Occasionally, this is ritualized on a specific day. There is confusion separating reality from unreality. It is mildly chaotic for them, but part of them craves this controlled break from the normal rules of their society. And it's often very joyful for them. I am an April Fool's girl for some reason. Like I love, I have no idea why. It's just like fun to mess with people, especially your mother or people like that forget that it's April Fool's, but yeah. Today, I'm talking to my dear friend, Oscar-nominated actress, Kirsten Dunst. Can you tell me about the April Fool's Day just leading up to your first child's arrival? Listen, it was very brief what I did. You know, it's April Fool's. He's due in May. You know, I'm just like resting a bunch and not doing much, just being pregnant and probably a little, you know, excited, but you know, there's not much to do. <laughs> and we're renting this house together. I go to the kitchen and I just like spray, you know, like water from the sink on my legs and my thighs and everything. And I just ran into Jesse and I was like, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God, feel, 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 feel my legs, feel my legs. My water just broke. <laughs> I couldn't hold it. He, I, he had such shock, but then I couldn't, I couldn't do that to him for that long. So I just, I broke pretty quickly and, you know, started laughing. That's, that's so amazing though, that like you, like his reaction, you sold it so well to him. He took it so seriously that you were like, no, no, no. (laughs) Yeah, I immediately started laughing and I think he was... I mean, he was very relieved, obviously. Um, yes. Yeah, I, I couldn't hold it together for that long, but um, but I did get him. April Fools is like this moment where like everybody gets to pretend, and like every and like we have these little moments where it's socially acceptable. And like some people really sell it. What do you think we love about this idea that there's one day where everything's, anything goes, anything can happen, it's sort of up for grabs? Like, why do we love it? I think it's just a time where you get to be maybe a child again and like be mischievous. I mean, I think I remember growing up in New Jersey, we had this thing called um, Mischief Night. 
at, it was an East Coast thing. It was the night before Halloween. And everyone who had homes kind of knew their houses were going to get TP'd or like eggs. And I think yeah. the neighbors just kind of let you do it. But then when I came to California, I was like, oh, you guys don't do mischief night. And I almost enjoyed that that preparation for Halloween so much. It was so part of the whole Halloween experience for me that, um, yeah, I think that April Fool's just lets you mess, you know, mess with people and it's acceptable. Yeah. It's almost like there are these moments where we need like a little release yeah. valve for like the tension that like are doing everything the way society says we're supposed to do, you know, like being in like orderly. It's like we have to like let out this stuff. So have you ever been the recipient of a great April Fool's joke or prank, general prank? Well, once I was on Punked, which is I really wanted to be on that show because I wanted someone to spend that much money on messing with me. <laughs> like when does anyone get to, you know, have someone like actually invest a lot of money to get yeah. you? And like, it's like a production and there's like all these different people involved. And our mutual friend Liat was in the episode and my other best friend Molly, who Sasha knows too, was in the episode. And I just, I really, when that show came out, I was like, I was dying to be punked just for that pure reason of that surprise of, you know, gotcha. Like I, when does that happen? Did they really get you? Refresh my memory. What was the punk? I was, me and Liat and Malls were going out and we went to a girl's dinner first and um, we got stopped at a checkpoint and they arrested Liat. And, oh, and she backed up into a police car when they were just yes. in a park. And yes, I remember this Ollie's now. backing up in the background and I'm trying to make excuses for her. Like she's just really nervous and I'm trying to defend Liat, but also like they were making up. They were being really weird and shady. So I remember them pulling out a receipt and I was like, oh, is that from the restaurant? Because <laughs> it, you know, obviously listed what we had been drinking or whatever. And, you know, I was like, she didn't drink and whatever. Just And then, um, yeah, then, you know, when it was going to be really bad and they were going to arrest her, you know, they were like, well, you got punked, but. It's just a fun memory, too, for all of us to have together on YouTube or whatever. Yeah. Oh, my God. Totally. I'm curious, like, how you... So, like, the first year that Helena, like, had April Fool... Like, was going to school on April Fool... Like, we were, like, walking to school. So she's in nursery school. It's, like, you know, a year or two ago. Yeah. And I, like, realized it's April... And I'm like, oh, I have to tell you something. There Today at school someone might try to like trick you and she was like what and like explain like the whole idea of how would you explain this to like an extra and like I had to be like okay it's for fun it's silly but there's a game today where someone might tell you something just for a moment that's not true and then you know then it's it's April Fool's Day they'll say April Fool's and then you'll know that it wasn't true and she was like Oh, and to this day now, when she she doesn't say just kidding, she says April Fool's like all year long. I love that. She'll be like, I didn't eat all my whatever blueberries at snack time, and then like open the little container, and she'll be like April Fool's. <laughs> like, what? Did, she's an angel, baby. She's an angel. She's so good. She's so good. But how do you explain it? And like, what are the expectations? Is it because winter's done and we need to lighten up for spring? Like, we need to get the... Oh, yeah. I don't know. And also just the idea, like, that spring, like, I mean, you know, if you live in a place, like, where you grew up and, like, you know, on the East Coast, where, like, the 
weather changes really dramatically, that spring fever, you know, like the first nice day when people are like wild, like especially kids. I almost feel like that mischievous spirit that all of a sudden everyone's just like climbing the walls because it's sunshine for the first time. Yeah, exactly. What do you think like sells like when you're like a practical joke or April Fool's Day, like as an actor, what do you think sells it? What makes the difference between someone being like, "Mm," and someone being completely sold on something? I've always texted things because I can't really keep a straight face when it comes to lying and things like that. I'm not a good liar, actually, at all. Even though, even that I'm an actress, like, I can't lie. Like, everything has to feel very real to me. So I don't actually rely on any trickery to, you know, I don't have that in me. So when you're acting, you're experiencing it like it's totally real. But when you're fooling around, that's really interesting that it's totally different. Can you like speak to that a little more? In real life, I care too much about the other person. I don't want to hurt their feelings or scare them too much. And obviously, when you're acting, that's your you want to experience that and feel those things as authentically as possible. But to do that to someone truly feels a little cruel and psychotic, you know? To like yeah. get someone in that way feels a little crazy to me. <laughs> I don't know. My son scares me a lot, actually. He'll hide behind doors. Sometimes I have to pretend he really got yeah. me because he's very disappointed when he does oh, it. Oh, yeah. But he gets me good. Like, Same. he'll just jump out of an area. And I'm like, oh, my God. you sc-. I, He scares me. Like, he's like you know, almost five. But yeah, he he really loves scaring me and and it drives me, you know, nuts a little bit. <laughs> There's something about getting someone and seeing a reaction. Yeah. Like you did that that it yeah, it satisfies him in this way that like He got me. Helena does that too. More though, like like a little fib and saying like, did you really believe me? But what you're saying is really interesting about the difference between playing a trick on someone and acting is like, is the other person in on it? I think, you know, everyone has levels of intuition that maybe, you know, mine might be a little bit more heightened because of my job. And so, um... I know even when at, with, when I'm acting with someone who like kind of is just um, going through the motions a little bit more, like mm. it does feel like I have to figure it out then just for my myself. And I, I come very prepared. So I have like a, a set of very real places that I've dug up inside myself to use for a particular role. So for me, everything feels like it's coming from an authentic place so that I feel free in what I'm doing. But I know I can you know, you can smell bullshit. I I think even when people watch movies and they're like drawn to a certain actor or actress or film, it's because something feels very real and authentic. And I think that's a a place where like, you know, some people are really good at having a very mechanical way about how they do, or it's a very precise performance where like everything's very well thought out, but there's something missing where you feel like, I see that, you know, your diction's perfect and you're, you know, you're, pontificating whatever it is just like very powerful but it at the end of the day sometimes I feel like like I didn't feel anything did you see after sun this year I haven't seen a movie in a year I have a baby 
<laughs> and at the end of the day, all I want to watch is like Love is Blind or something. You know what I mean? Hundred percent, hundred percent. Relaxing trash. <laughs> yes, but reality TV that actually brings up another question of like who's acting, where the bullshit is, and where it's not, and like who's having a really authentic. I mean, that's almost a weird combination. Yeah. Of a movie where there's actors, you know, everybody's acting and real life or, you know, interpersonal relationships where you're just like, I mean, it's like some people are acting and some people aren't and trying to figure out which is which is, I mean, when you're watching a show like that, a reality show or something like that, like, are you keenly aware of who's pretending and who's speaking from the heart? I am, but I don't care. Like, it's like at that point, I'm just interested in these combos of people and how they're interacting together and they can't be that good of actors that they're that natural about everything and obviously drama's created and everything like that but I kind of I don't really care that much that's kind of what it is when Helena is doing her little you know mischievous tricks to me like the so I asked her to clean something up in her room and she said I don't want to and I was like okay just do the best you can and I'll, I'll finish cleaning it up and so she comes into my room she's like okay I did the best I can but I can't put all the blocks away and I'm like okay it's fine just go and so I'm like walking towards her room and she's going down the stairs and I look in her room and it's totally cleaned up and that was her and then she's like April Fools did I get you what an angel that's how (laughs) wow Sasha you really do have an angel I got she is amazing. I mean, it's not always like this, but the fact that she went down the stairs and didn't wait to see my reaction, that's what really sold me because that's what she would really do if she didn't want to deal anymore and it was going to be handed off to me to clean up, she would go down and do what she was going to do. And I felt like that was like these little nuances of like how you sell something. It's like when you really do what you would do. It's just such a tiny thing. But if she had stayed in the hallway and watched, I would have known. Right. Or I would have thought she didn't clean up anything and she's watching you to see like, oh. Yes. That's the other thing. But yeah, that's just, that's just very, that's a very intelligent child you have. That's why. Well, thank you. <laughs> thank very, you. I'm quite fond of her. And it's, he's very cerebral, actually. He's a very oh yeah deep child. Cleaning rooms. That's a good way to say it. You do what you can and I'll finish it. Okay. So what are the other ways in which we do this? How do we use the same part of our brain that's like the mischievous child, like naughty part um, other times of the year? Well, I feel like I have to do that to get my kids to do stuff all the time. Like it's constantly a game of like, how can I make this a game to get you to brush your teeth? How can I make everything fun? Which is, it gets tiring, but like you kind of have to, in order to be a great parent, it feels like you kind of have to like make games out of things all the time. Like, yeah, like you brush your teeth. And it was like so much nicer of our teeth brushing just because I sang that song. You know what I mean? Yeah. I feel like I have to do little things like that. It's like a constant storytelling to them. Totally. You make such a good point about how much in parenting you need that sort of like puckish energy. You know what I mean? That sort of like fun, like you're like a little sprite who's making things interesting. And I feel like it is so connected to the playing make-believe, like pretend and like going into that world, which is kind of in the same realm as all this stuff. When you just sort of your child's like, oh, you know, this blanket is now a fort Mm -hmm. and we live here now when you're like, okay. I mean, it's like the improv, like a yes and, you know, 
this is so you have to make stuff up live as it's going along. That is sort of in a weird way, the other side of the coin of like playing a trick on someone. Yeah, because it's bringing imagination and joy and actually helping them. I think their brains develop better. Like I I do think parenting in that way, instead of just like yelling or getting frustrated or just being like, no, clean your room. It's like, I know it's a little extra step, but I think it invests so much in your child and the way they grow up in the long run. Like not having an iPad at the, you know, restaurant. Or yeah. And I, I sympathize with parents. I get it if you have to. I'm not judging anyone. It's just yeah, I haven't done it in a car. Like I really try not to because I just want them to know it. Also, like we had the shortest, shortest drive from like the grocery store home. And he's like, I'm bored. I was like, we're about to see your friends. Look out the window. I wonder what that man's like. Yeah. Like who's walking that dog. Yeah. I wonder who lives there. Or look at the stoplights or whatever it is. I don't, yeah, I I just really think all this make-believe fun things makes life feel more alive, too, I think, for people. If they're just, I think, enriches you. The stuff about I'm bored, I really struggle with that, too, because I'm like, you're in a house full of toys and books. Sometimes I think when little kids say I'm bored, they're saying I'm lonely. You know, like, I want friends around but there's something about the idea of I'm bored. Like, I get, like, triggered by it. Like, because I do feel like... Yes, I, I agree with you. You're like, I do everything for you at all times. Yeah. We just went to the grocery store. I just bought you whatever snack you wanted. You probably ate a, you know, whatever. It's just, yeah, I'm bored is a little triggering for me, too. I don't know. It's like I want to give them the perspective that life is intrinsically interesting rather than you have to, like, be entertained. Yeah. And that you have to make it for yourself, which is weirdly, like, kind of what this sort of stuff is, like, playing pretend, coming up with something that all this stuff, it doesn't, like, require stuff. It doesn't require, like, anything that, like, costs money. It's just your imagination. It's so hard to teach how valuable that is, but it's so worth it to take the time, I think. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Like, I remember our, oh, we have a really incredible nanny that helps us, and she, I remember when Ennis was little, she would um, tell a story and have him walk around and, like, pretend he was doing things like he was a fairy child, and he looked at a flower, and then he smelled it. So she'd, like, say these things, and then he would do them. So the fairy looked up at the tree really fast, and then he ran to the rock. And, like, she would just make up long stories for him to kind of imagine himself doing these things in our backyard. It's, it's little things like that. I remember hours playing in my yard. I was never bored. I was just making up things in my brain based on books I've read, like Harriet the Spy, and I'd get out glasses and go snoop, snoop in my neighbor's yards. You know, I don't think that people do that as much these days because it's also the world just feels a little... I mean, I grew up in a double cul-de-sac in New Jersey in the suburbs, so it was very, you know, free, and I didn't feel scared at all. Now we're, like, in L.A., I'm, you know... Different. And I think also just this idea that when there's not an iPad, I mean, like when I explain like, you know, and we're pretty like limiting with the screen time, but like she obviously watches, you know, movies and shows. The world of like children's television is so magical and it's like so you're going into this other world. It is kind of like someone's put in all this effort to transport you into this other place versus you transporting yourself in your head. Wait, the most important question is, do you watch Bluey? I love Bluey. To me, that's the best cartoon on television. It's 
brilliant. It's so brilliant. And like the the one where the mom dog who has like eight puppies and she says to Chili, like, I need to tell you something. You're doing great. Have you seen this one? And they're just like I've seen every episode. And the one where the grandpa has heartworm and he needs to rest. Also, speaking of trickery, he learned his best, weirdest little jokes that I didn't realize they were from Bluey. Did um, Helena ever do this one to you? Ennis goes, point to your nose and, you know, what's this? And you're like, nose. And then you open your palm. What's in here? And you say nothing. And then my son goes, mom knows nothing. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. That I was like, oh, you're telling me jokes, which is, yeah, you know, it's just I, I that were really funny. I, I laughed at that. Yeah, no, it's so it's the feeling of getting somebody, yes, ah, or making someone laugh or getting a reaction is a big thing. You're so right, though, that it's like that, like those little jokes that you learn from Bluey or or like a knock knock joke where you've said something like knock knock, who's there boo boo hoo it's just a joke don't cry like one like that where you're getting the person to say something unwittingly and then you turn it around I mean it must be like a developmental marker to be able to play a joke on someone to be able to trick someone you know what I mean there is something about it that is and kids you're so right kids love it and getting a reaction we must have some deep need to feel like we can like get one over on somebody else you know in a lighthearted way yeah I mean my son even wants me to like pretend I'm mad at him sometimes he's like pretend you're mad and send me to my room I was like it's so weird (laughs) go to your room you didn't clean up any of your toys like (laughs) he wants me to fake get mad at him there's oh my god there's so many pretend to feel this way pretend you're pretend you're sad about this and then I'll come over and tell you like all those things I mean it's so weird because as we're talking about this I'm realizing how much of it is so interconnected and like when kids like want to basically do like improv and like say like you do this part and then I'll do this part I don't know there's some overlapping thing between like playing pretend um, playing a trick on someone, telling someone a joke, improv, acting. I don't know but the, how they're all related, but they feel very related and like pranks. And the need, yeah, the need to mess with someone. Every day I pick my son up, up from school and he'll tell me, I was like, how was your day? And it seemed, you know, it was great. I can tell he's happy when he's coming out. I have his backpack. Yeah. I gave him a t- Terrible. Every day. Terrible. Yeah. Or thumbs down. I'm like, oh, do you want me to call your school right now? I'm going to ask the teachers why it was so terrible for you. I'm really curious. He's like, no, 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 no. You don't need to do that. <laughs> he just, he, honestly, I feel like the more we're talking about it, the more I realize our relationship is a lot about messing with each other. And it's such a bond, too, because it's such a sign of trust when you can, like, it's kind of like sarcasm, where, like, when you know someone, like, when you meet someone new and you make a joke and it falls flat and they don't realize that you're kidding and it's, like, very awkward, it's like when you have a really deep, intimate relationship with someone, like your family member, right, your child, your partner, whoever it is, or your best friend, and you know they're joking, even over text, even over text. It doesn't have to do with the tone. It's just they know that you're kidding. And, like, you could have the driest sense of humor, but, like, there's a sense of trust that they know 
that you're kidding and you know that they know. And there's something about that that really forms a bond. You're I, you're reminding me right now of he had this love show at school and they asked each kid, what is love to you? And it's like he said, and I was very proud of him. I really came out of left field for me. He said, being yourself with people you love. And that's kind of oh. what it is. It's just, you know, you're safe and you're loved. That's why you can mess with each other. And that's why you can lay it all on the line or trick somebody or it, it's about trust and love and playfulness and like being yourself, I guess, your truest self and knowing that no one's going to reject you for that. Oh. It's so amazing and it's such a paradox that by pretending, you're being your truest self. Yeah. Weird, Sasha. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my God, I love it so much. I feel that way in what I do. I feel like my job is to be the truest part of myself for the vessel of this character. Because to me, that's the most effective. Like, you know, you see certain people emote or whatever on screen or whatever it is. Sometimes you don't always feel connected or whatever it is. Certain actors or actresses, I think that's why you're like, oh, he's one of my favorite actors because he feels, you know, very authentic in what he does. Yeah. That's such a good point that it's the truest acting, the most powerful, the most meaningful, the kind of performances that change someone's life just by watching are when even though the words that are written are totally fictitious, you know, the emotion is so human and so real that it's not, it's not pretend in some deeper way. It's not, it shouldn't feel that way. That's what a good movie does to you. My next guest is Dr. Gina Jorgensen, who teaches folklore at Butler University. How do you think about the lines between these different kinds of telling untruths and how they connect to to this idea of trickery that seems like it's part of so many cultures? That's such a great question. So I think some understanding of what's meant to be conveyed as true and what's not meant to be conveyed as true at all is built into how we think about folklore, art, and culture. Like when you go to the movies, you don't think you're going to see a documentary unless it's labeled as a documentary. So you're going to go on purpose, watch something that never happened. Um, With folklore, which is my specialty, when you hear a fairy tale that begins once upon a time, you don't think you're hearing about real people with actual biographies. Like you don't think Snow White was a real person, at least I hope not. Um, but whereas if you hear, oh my God, my best friend's hairdresser told this crazy story about what happened to her nephew. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Perfect, perfect, perfect. So many urban legends start like that. We call it a fof or a friend of a friend. That's just enough connection Mm. to give it authority and credibility, but enough distance so that the teller can distance themselves from it. So I feel like in a lot of our folklore and pop culture genres, we have an intuitive understanding of of at least some of these truth versus falsehood things. But when it comes to pranks and tricks and so on, it can get very ambiguous. Within the bounds of this one day every year, it is socially acceptable to play pranks on someone and to make jokes that you would never in reality do. So it's kind of, in some ways, it subverts social order because you can prank someone with more power than you and in theory there's no consequences or you can Mm. say something untrue to your friends and they won't hate you forever 
Um, so it's like this one day when the normal rules of social order are suspended. And there's some precedent for this. And a lot of um, old medieval European festivals, like that was a time when things went topsy-turvy or carnivalesque in the words of scholar Mikhail Bakhtin. Um, so like societies have had that for a while, just like different times of the year and different kinds of outlets. Because we need like a release valve for like the tension that, you know, we build with all these like social norms that we have to follow all the time. Can you speak a little bit to like, is April Fool's Day connected to those festivals? Like how, what's the history there? There's some research by my folklore colleague, Nan McIntyre. She found that uh, we can trace April Fool's back to when Charles IX of France adopted the Gregorian calendar in 1564, which moved, <gasps> I know, right? <laughs> which moved the new year from March 25th to January 1st. And um, apparently some people were stubborn and were like, no, we're not doing this. And the people who refused <gasps> to go along with this calendar change were called April Fool's. Under the old calendar, uh, the Julian cal calendar, I guess, people, French people had visited and exchanged gifts on um, April 1st, which was the final day of the old calendar's New Year's celebrations. And so if you didn't adapt to that and move New Year's to when it was supposed to be, which is now January 1st, you were called an April Fool. Like, what are you still doing on April 1st, you fool, kind of a thing. <gasps> this is blowing my mind. Yes. And so what, what then ended up happening was like this was France and it didn't quite like reverberate out to other parts of the world just yet. And apparently we get some of the first references to this. And again, I'm reading McIntyre's article. Apparently this happened in the mid 1700s where it actually came to England. And so we have some references uh, back then to April Fool's and April Fool's Day pranks. And there's an April fish in there somewhere. So there's a lot of weird variations on this. It kind of feels parallel to this idea of upsetting the normal social order is a kind of change. I think everyone has had the experience where you read something or see a headline on April 1st and maybe you don't realize it's April Fool's Day and you have at least a moment before the critical thinking kicks in where you're like, can this be so? Yeah, so my understanding is that's fairly modern because we have some documentation from the 1800s and the early to mid 1900s that it was individuals pranking each other. Like basically the version of like putting a kick me sign on the back of someone's uh, shirt or like, <laughs> look, your shoelace is untied or whatever. Um, so like th those are a century or two old. Um, but I think the corporate stuff is newer. We do have documentation from the mid-1900s onwards of some corporations getting in on this. So um, in 1957, there was a British TV show, uh, Panorama, and they ran a special on a family of Swiss spaghetti farmers, like farmers who harvested <laughs> spaghetti from spaghetti trees. And apparently all these people called oh the BBC God. afterwards and they're like, how do we grow spaghetti? Are you serious? Oh my God, that's amazing. Um, the other thing I wanted to note is that there is another holiday when some kind of trickery and deception is acceptable. Ooh. Halloween. Yes. So there's this one um, hypothesis that, you know, April Fool's is kind of like the marker of spring when winter gives way to spring. And Halloween is the marker of fall giving way to winter. So these are almost two like seasonal gateways <gasps> that like mark our year. I love that so much. And it's sort of like, you know, the signals that nature gives that, that the season is changing are not always 
seems like summer and it's already fall. Sometimes the snow comes early. It's still snowing in April. You know, we ha- it's like there's something about those times of year where it does feel like there's some trickery. There is some connection to things not being as they seem and almost like you can't believe your eyes. Yeah. So what about in terms of like the trickster characters in folklore and so many of like very ancient tales? What is the through line there? Many cultures have trickster figures. It's a really common motif in mythology all around the world. So among the Navajo, you have coyote. In various West African beliefs, you have Anansi, the spider. Norse mythology, you have Loki. So the list just kind of goes on and on. So they tend to be boundary-crossing, transgressive figures who you can never really contain because either they're literally shapeshifters like with Anansi and with Loki sometimes they're sort of gender fluid as with Loki um and they're they don't really kind of uh, resonate on the good versus evil spectrum like tricksters are kind of amoral they tend to be selfish and hungry and out for a good time like if you've heard the saying I'm here for a good time not a long time yeah, I think that's very trickster. Um, so we have a lot of yeah. in mythology. We also have them in um, folk tales and fairy tales. I feel like often we think of folklore as being like, um, you know, the rules you tell children, like the, the way that you sort of communicate what's acceptable and what's not acceptable to the next generation rather than just like really hilarious clever naughty behavior (laughs) yeah it can it can definitely be all of those things i think that april fool's day pranks are kind of their own little genre of folklore as well because you can have these sort of ritualistic repetitive things that you know become a thing over time and that's that's tradition right there which is a part of folklore yeah what do you think is like the in your personal opinion or professional but what do you think is like the quintessential april fool's day joke yeah so i don't like tricks that are mean so the ones where you like pretend to break up with someone or lie about being pregnant or married or divorced or whatever so i i don't like those personally (laughs) um so i really think it's just inventing some kind of wild scenario and bringing it on someone who has no clue um and getting them to go along with it do you feel like it's a Net positive or net negative to have a day where there is, the, or two days if you include Halloween, where there is this break in the social order and we get to sort of, um, I don't know, blow up these expectations. Yeah, I think the carnivalesque is a net positive. I think people do need to let loose. People do need a way to, you know, talk about taboo things or whatever. Again, like don't don't be mean necessarily, but you know, if you never get to question the social order by subverting it, then like what are you doing? Yeah. Well, and that's what I think is really interesting about the modern, you know, media outlet version of this, where these often faceless corporations and media outlets that are in this position of authority put something out that it looks exactly like all the stuff they put out that's supposedly true, but is not. And we have to use our critical thinking faculties to dissect what is just a surprising new advancement and what is a joke. And I feel like that's something about that is really useful to like, 
keep that part of the brain active and keep that muscle going. Possibly. I think we're living in an age of greater disinformation than ever. And I teach at a liberal arts college. I obviously think critical thinking skills are very important. So yeah, I do think it's useful to have times when you have to kind of pause and step back and be like, but wait. Um, for instance, you know, we, we have whole websites devoted to satire like The Onion. And I think when you, yeah. and some of their recent point, they've been like, man, even we couldn't make this stuff up. And and I think it yeah. is useful to kind of pull back and pause and be like, okay, how dystopian has the world actually gotten and how do I feel about that? So if nothing else, it's a useful moment for reflection. In terms of like the trickster characters and like folklore and like what, what do you think the reason is we've developed these characters in so many disparate cultures? Why, what is it that that draws us to this kind of character? Or do you think it's just that every village throughout the course of history had someone like this, so they appeared in our stories? Yeah, so I think the trickster character is pretty close to universal, maybe not actually universal. But I think that as most societies have developed, they have developed some form of structures, rules, institutions. But with that is an awareness that there's always life outside of the institutions. So you can let people discover that for themselves. You can try to contain it within your your mythology and your storytelling by like actually pointing it out. Here's an alternative way to do things, but then kind of fold it back in at the same time. So for instance, there's um, a myth where Loki is, I, I don't know why, he just kind of is like, screw you guys, I'm going to go like live in the mountains or something like that. And he turns himself into a fish and he's frolicking around. He's like, you know, if I wanted to catch me, how would I catch me? And he sits down and like crochets a little net or whatever. He's like, ah, that would do the trick. I'm so clever. I could catch myself. And then the rest of the gods come to find him because he's in trouble as always. And he's like, oh, oh crap. And he throws the net in the fire. But the other gods are able to recreate his pattern and make a net that could catch him. So it's almost like the trickster is like ahead of his time in some ways or her time but still folded back into society through these stories. So it's like it gives us these little glimpses of being like totally subversive and totally out there, but then it usually comes back to some kind of like conforming to society. Just like April Fool's Day. Yes. Because if someone plays an April Fool's Day prank on April 2nd, we'd look at them like, what are you doing? You had one day where you got to break the rules, and that day has passed, and now you got to pull it together. Yeah. <laughs> no, it's so true. It's so true. What do you think about the way that children love to play tricks, you know, on adults especially? What do you think it is that children crave? Is it because the parent is the authority, and it's like a little micro version of this power struggle? Actually, I think so. So in studies of children's folklore, we tend to see that children are not the naive, innocent little creatures you like to romanticize them as. I mean, just think of so many playground rhymes and games like greasy, grimy go for guts. That's disgusting. And so I've never heard that. Oh. But that sounds terrible. <laughs> it's a thing. But, but yeah, so like one of our main hypotheses is that children are living their whole lives under authority from sources that they have very little agency under. So all they know is authority, power, structure, and hierarchy. So then they transform that and subvert that in their own games. So they are trying to understand it because it structures their lives completely. 
Oh, that's fascinating. And when they get to play a little joke on their parents or jump out and yell boo and scare them, it's like they get a little bit of that power back. Yes. What do you think the future of this kind of, you know, these rituals around tricks and these stories that we've been telling for generations, where do you see it going in the future? Well, as evidenced by recent Marvel things, Loki is super popular. I think the idea of a trickster character resonates with a lot of audiences. Um, I did research around the 2016 election when uh, Trump was elected, and there were all these memes coming out of Biden as a trickster figure, booby-trapping the White House as though it was home alone. Yeah, I remember that. Yeah, and you know things like leaving shrimp yeah. shells and the curtain rods and uh, turning all the TV stations just to Spanish and things like that. And so I think there's a sense that we like tricksters, they're entertaining, they're fun, but they're also figures that we turn to when maybe we are feeling disempowered and we are wanting some creative input on how we can fix our lives. Although, you know, you wouldn't want to make the same life choices as most tricksters that usually doesn't go well. But yeah, I think that there's a real fascination with boundary crossing, with trickster figures. And as we're seeing in laws being passed all over the U.S., there's also a pushback and a desire to not have people cross boundaries, such as, you know, gender boundaries and so on. Right. So I think as long as there's pushback, there will be people who are like, screw your boundaries. We're going to waltz right over them in drag. This mischievous, childlike playfulness, this bending of reality for pleasure, for joy, why do we love it so much? It is a form of creativity that virtually every kid seems to have an innate, nature-given talent for, and it's a crucial tool in connecting us to one another. Decades-old punchlines with my family, my lifelong girlfriends, the inside jokes that played such a big part in the early days of falling in love with my husband, even the hours of peekaboo with my babies, wrapped up in the fabric of all my deepest, truest connections, there is a joke of one sort or another. Sometimes these connections even go further. In art, in comedy, we get to feel these types of bonds with strangers. Whole cultures get to sometimes be in on the joke together. The ability to gauge what's funny, what's clever, what's going to land, what's going to fall flat, what's too mean, what's too far. Where the line is, is in the end, a kind of dance we do to show we understand each other. We really know each other. We are on the same page. Our bonds are so deep that some unspoken truth can somehow paradoxically be revealed by its antithesis. Something to think about next time someone you love really gets you good. Thank you so much to my guests today, Kirsten Dunst, icon of so many of your favorite movies and mine, and Dr. Gina Jorgensen, who is the author of Folklore 101. Next week, my guest is author Greg Epstein, humanist chaplain at MIT and Harvard, and we're going to talk about something very, very ancient and how we can sort of make it modern. 2017 was one of those years. And you have a year like that and you feel like, you know, it's as bad as it's going to get. And you forget that you could then have a year like 2020. 
Our theme music is by Evgeny Klemenko. Additional music in this episode by Spear Fisher and Blue Dot Sessions. My producer is Dale McGowan. Strange Customs is a production of Only Sky Media. Visit us online at onlysky.media slash strangecustoms. Tune in next time for more Strange Customs.